2: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston and I am a host on New Books and Sociology. New Books, of so- New Books and Sociology is a channel on the New Books Network. And today I have Robin Bartram with me. Uh, who is an assistant professor of sociology at Tulane University? She earned a PhD of sociology from Northwestern University. Bartram is currently studying um, studies housing with a focus on its physical and environmental aspects. And today we'll be discussing stacked decks. Um, so to start off with, Robin, if I may, um, how did you how did you find this project, or how did the project find you uh, in terms of uh, wanting to study? Uh, you know, housing and uh, inspections of homes, of, of, yes, homes and apartments and, yes, buildings.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, for inviting me on this podcast, Michael. I really appreciate it. Um, So I started doing research for the book in graduate school at Northwestern. So I was living in Chicago and I was very interested in housing and the disparities in housing that were really evident across different neighborhoods and different parts of the city. And because I was mostly just walking or traveling through different places, the disparities I was noticing were largely in how buildings looked. So whether they looked old or new or big or small or shabby or shiny, for example. And I became really interested in the assumptions that I think we all make about who we expect lives in these different kinds of buildings. So assumptions that we make mostly from just looking at the outside of buildings. I think we've all been taught through watching TV, films and other experiences how to use buildings as cues to tell us whether a neighborhood is safe or not, for example, or whether the residents of a building are rich or poor. And while I think we all do this, I wanted to try and study this in a context where these assumptions had real concrete implications for people and for housing inequality. And so that's when I discovered that building inspectors exist, first of all, and realize that this is really their job. So they go out to buildings and assess the condition and decide if they need repairs, if um, the conditions violate the Chicago Building Code or not. And they do this really often without meeting the people who live in the buildings, but still using the building as a guide or as a cue, say, to help them decide who lives there, whether the owner is making a profit or is wealthy, or whether they are struggling financially, for example. And the decisions that inspectors make have real potential um, to have real ramifications because they have the weight of the city behind them and a whole legal framework as well um, of building code enforcement. I began my research by interviewing and shadowing building inspectors in Chicago as they went out into the city and decided what, kind, uh, what counted as building code violations. So their inspections cover the whole city, all different kinds of buildings, and a whole range of violations. So during my research, we visited foreclosed homes on Chicago's southwest side, single-family homes on the north side that are conduits for white intergenerational wealth. Luxury high-rise rental buildings with history of uh, disrepair, and also smaller rental buildings turned condos in rapidly changing neighborhoods across the city. So every day and every inspection was really markedly different. One inspection I'd be straightening my eyes to see evidence of bugs, and the next I'd find myself sitting carefully on burnt-out floorboards in a building that had been partially destroyed by a gas explosion. Excellent.
3: So my guess is that Stack deck doesn't mean the back deck or the front deck that people might find themselves on, but uh, I think my, my understanding from the title of Stack Decks is that is that meaning is not made in a social vacuum. Stack Decks is, is, is meaning that is made uh, by the um, housing inspectors from inferences that they take from everyday experiences. Is, is that accurate?
1: Absolutely, yes. So stack decks is a term that I use that approximates a synonym for inequality, basically. And the reason that I use this particular term really derives from my research with inspectors. So the decisions that they make uh, when they're out on inspections are informed by their ideas about the haves and the have nots and the uneven balance of power and resources in the city. And I think most sociologists and others, including myself initially, would assume that they are acting on their idea of inequality. But I came to realize this wasn't quite accurate for what I was seeing. So inspectors have very sophisticated, but also kind of colloquial ways of making sense of and talking about inequality. But they don't use the word inequality. So stacked decks is a term that I use to capture the way people on the ground, like inspectors, think about what sociologists or others might call inequality. And I think that it's useful. Um, I think it's a useful term because it's, it's more active than a word like inequality. I think it suggests that decks are stacked by people, for people and against people. And I think this really reflects how inspectors and other people in similar positions who navigate disparate contexts really see the world in which they work.
3: And, and this is something that's ongoing. You said that it's more of an active than a passive uh, approach to understanding. It's, it's, it's being created and recreated uh, as they are working on their, um, well, as boots are on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. So what
3: would uh, what would they view to be the housing inspector view to be justice both retributive and reparative.
1: So I think justice is a really interesting concept because I think it's one of those words that we use all the time without really specifying what it means. I think our definitions as you sort of suggested are usually related to what we think should happen for justice to be achieved so such as retribution which is a kind of punishment for injustice or reparation, which usually means some kind of compensation for injustice. And I found that inspectors use both retribution and more reparative ideas about doling out justice when they make decisions on inspections. And I call both kinds of these um, doling outs of justice stabs at justice, which is a term that I use to capture sort of small scale immediate attempts to even things out. So importantly, they're not really planned or calculated in the same way as something that we might think of as resistance, let's say. They stem from normative ideals, but stabs at justice are less likely to be geared toward wholesale change. Instead, their efforts to make things fairer in the moment at hand.
3: And then in some cases, it may also result in, in black justice. Is that accurate?
1: Yes, that is correct. Um, So justice blockers is another, um, another another term that I use to try to capture the importance of the context in which building code enforcement is embedded. So inspectors come down hard on some rental properties by listing as many violations as possible and insisting issues get resolved. But fixing violations is associated with rent increases, either because landlords need to do this to cover costs or they use repairs as an excuse to rehab units, for example, and then they charge higher rents. So overall higher rents make cities less affordable and this has disproportionate impact on people with the fewest resources. So the stab at justice inspectors sort of initial attempt to make things fairer in the moment at hand is blocked by the sort of the housing market, the rental market that they're embedded within, for example.
3: So this is a very complex situation overall because from inspector to inspector, you see patterns, but then you also see nuances that exist. You have a neighborhood on top of that. So different neighborhoods have different expectations, different, uh, different. Um, uh, how would I put it, different zoning situations are also part of this. Who owns a home or is it being rented? Uh, where is the home located in the community? And so on. You write that not all violations of building codes result in a citation. And there may be strategic reasons as to why some inspectors determine certain violations aren't worth citing and other ones need to be cit- uh, cited. Could you talk more about Um, how these strategic decisions are made and and why an inspector might let a violation go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the bulk of the work of building inspectors um, that I shadowed is following up on calls, mostly from tenants or concerned residents about a whole host of issues to do with safety, health risks and quality of life issues. So inspectors follow up on these calls by visiting the building in question and deciding if there are building code violations. And they usually are because it turns out that all buildings have building code violations. So then the job of an inspector really becomes using their limited time and resources wisely and deciding what to do about those violations. So do they cite a property owner and leave it at that? Do they overlook issues because they aren't that serious? Or do they send a property owner or landlord to court to mandate repairs? And so this is the moment in which they draw on the frame of the stack deck to guide their decisions. And use their assessments of who has money, wealth, who is making profit by collecting rents, for example, versus who has little money or resources because they're not collecting rent, or because they're a longtime homeowner, let's say, in a neighborhood where their property is overtaxed and underassessed, and they're trying to keep up with taxes or mortgage payments with no money left over for repairs or maintenance. So they really divide the city and the housing stock up into the sort of haves and the have-nots, a kind of David and Goliath story uh, to guide their decisions. And so using this frame, the stack deck frame, they're much more likely to insist repairs get done in buildings owned by big professional landlords or in wealthy neighborhoods because they assume the money is there and thus any kind of disrepair is neglect. So one example of this is when I joined Inspector Bill on a sunny but cold afternoon for an inspection of a rehabbed four story, 40 plus unit apartment building on the main commercial strip of a neighborhood on the city's north side. So though the neighborhood is historically, uh, ethnically diverse, it's changing rapidly it's becoming increasingly white. Things are getting more expensive. Um, there's a brand new CrossFit studio and there's a new Whole Foods as well just down the street. So the building advertised uh, itself as offering luxury style apartments. Um, And it exemplified other kind of rehabs in the area, boasting a shared roof deck with a view of the skyline, a boutique hotel-like lobby, high-tech video surveillance and entry system, a dog run, et cetera, et cetera. But also uh, importantly, to maximize the number of units in the building, developers had squeezed bedrooms into the corners of floor floor plans. As a result, the bedrooms had no external windows and the only source of light and ventilation were cutouts in the bedroom's partition walls. So these cutouts did not meet code. Some were covered by blinds and others were just too small. So the inspector I was with, Inspector Bill, expressed his annoyance as he kept finding the same issue as he went through um, sort of very irritably through uh, one apartment to another throughout the really large building. He told me this kind of building was all the rage of developers these days who were converting old buildings into micro apartments, but still charging rents comparable to those for larger units. So this example of corner cutting, despite high profit margins, is exactly the kind of instance where inspectors are much more likely to make a kind of retributive stab at justice and insist all violations get fixed by contrast though they might overlook minor issues in homes where they see the owner is struggling to make ends meet and for bigger issues in these kinds of buildings inspectors perhaps work with housing court judges to give owners extra time to raise funds to fix issues so one example of this from my research is when an inspector in, the, in, the, in housing court in Chicago agreed to allow a woman extra time to complete some repairs on her porch. So like many others in building court that day and, and every other day in fact, the woman's three unit building had a porch that desperately needed repairs. Some of the steps had rotted and the handrails were loose. Her father who used to take care of the building had died a few years ago and her mother was housebound. And the unit that they had rented out on the third floor of the building was now vacant, meaning they were not bringing in any rental income at all. So this was her second court date, and she had promised to have made progress on the porch by now. She showed the inspector photos on her phone of some work that she had completed, including removing some debris and fixing some door glass. But nothing had been done to the porch. So the inspector asked her if her family had owned the building for a long time and watched as she nodded. So finding out that the family were long-time owners with few resources was all he seemed to need to know. He agreed to allow her more time to fix the porch. So both of these examples that I've just uh, sort of um, demonstrated are stabs at justice, in my words, efforts to even things out considering the existing context of housing disparities and wealth inequality in the city.
2: Slash nbN fifty to get fifty percent off
3: uh so the Goliath is the housing inequality and the uh trying to overcome some of the deteriorating infrastructure, not necessarily the people uh, who are the giants that the inspectors are trying to overcome, and the David would be the inspectors who are the heroes trying to create a ch- create change within society.
1: Perhaps, yeah, I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way. And in my mind, it was more the struggling homeowners with the David and the sort of big professional landlords with the Goliath. But I think you could make you can make the argument that um, how you have just put it is is also accurate. Yeah.
3: Trying to overcome overcome a system that is... Systemically unequal, yes. right,
1: right, right. Yeah.
3: A, a mountain that is difficult to overcome as yes. as we continue to battle society, and uh, if we just figure out what society is,
1: right, right, yes. it's not an easy task. <laughs> so, so, so uh,
3: then we get into this whole institutionalization of uh, of inspection, but there's also some level of agency that inspectors have in doing their jobs. They 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 have this extra aspect of perceiving uh, perceiving in terms of uh, of what what needs to be fixed and not fixed. So where do these perceptions come from? Where are they socialized from or learned? Uh, who socializes them or where are they learned from? Right,
1: right. Yes. So I think this is an uh, an interesting question that uh, took me a while to try and decide how uh, in in my book how to answer it. And i think it's because it's a combination of things so i think that their sort of perception and their uh motivation is a co- comes from a combination of their working class backgrounds and also their informal training on the job so as um other people have shown um in work uh, prior to mine inspector um, working class backgrounds often heighten people's sense Uh, of awareness to struggle in the face of adversity. I think this is very much true for inspectors and also heightens their awareness to negligence. So the way this manifests in their work is in compassion for the struggling owners of modest single-family homes and small rental buildings that they inspect and in disdain for profiteers and corner-cutting. But their decisions, their stabs at justice, are also part of kind of an institutionalized practice in the buildings department. So helping out low-income homeowners and small-time landlords is, is not official policy, but it has become routinized and institutionalized over the years due to informal training and interactions in the office. So inspectors share stories in the office about coming down hard on bad landlords and helping out struggling homeowners. So the message gets across pretty loud and clear that this is what you do as a building inspector.
3: Yeah. So how does a person become a, a building inspector? What's the process? How, how do they get into such a position?
1: Most inspectors um, have worked in construction in their kind of earlier careers and then end up uh, sort of opting out of that, you know, kind of physical, physical labor um, to become building inspectors. So they use their expertise that they have as construction workers um, and turn it to inspecting buildings.
3: Uh, so this is that inference that you're talking about, using past experiences and construction and, and then also having office talk to learn from one another uh, in this, well, in this institutionalized field where there are norms and expectations and how they do their everyday job in order to keep in order to do a good job at it. Absolutely. And. And one of these things that they're weighing in everyday experience as inspectors is to determine what is a legitimate response versus a bullshit response. What are the differences and what does this necessarily mean for the inspector?
1: I mean, I think that in terms of determining the sort of legitimacy of uh, calls and requests, inspectors, it's an interesting question, because I think that this, this question uh, points to one of the ironies of code enforcement, which is that tenants make up, uh, I, it's, it's hard to gauge exactly, but I would say at least three quarters of calls that come in are from tenants. So, inspectors are usually responding to calls from tenants. However, they don't actually have any recourse to assist tenants because um, the actions that they take are either direct, are directed towards the, the property owners. And coming down hard on property owners does not always work out well for tenants because it can lead to rent increases. But then obviously going easy on property owners does not necessarily help our tenants either because then they're not doing anything to improve living conditions. So it's sort of an interesting paradox that tenants are the most precariously housed. Um, The deck is stacked sort of firmly against them in contemporary cities, but inspectors don't really show them as much compassion as they do um, with struggling homeowners, for example. One example of this is um, uh, one inspector I was with who um, we were we were inspecting a property. A woman had called because she had been be- uh, be- she had begun experiencing pretty bad um, respiratory issues when she moved into a new apartment. I mean, when we got to the apartment, we realized that this was a um, an illegally converted basement apartment. So there was not enough light and ventilation. Um, there was also some, I think, plumbing work that was um, not particularly um, well fixed at one point. And she'd, been, she'd become sick. She was something in the environment based on the sort of living conditions was making her pretty sick. So she had called the building inspector and the inspector had come out. And he wrote up the basement um, and he told the woman that we, he was going to send the owner, the landlord, straight to court. And she was very concerned because she thought that the, the, um, her landlord would retaliate by evicting her. And the inspector wasn't particularly sympathetic to the tenant, but he also didn't really have any recourse to be able to help her out because as I mentioned before, not citing the landlord is not helping the matter and citing the landlord is not helping the matter for this tenant either really. So I think it really speaks to one of the sort of limitations of the system of building code enforcement that exists in Chicago and elsewhere as well, that it's really punitive um, and there is not a lot um, inspectors can really do to help the people who are uh, usually the most marginalized in cities Te- who are tenants and so i think that um while inspectors don't show much sympathy towards tenants this points to a sort of bigger um issue which is that how we act has a lot to do with what we have the power to do and because inspectors lack recourse to assist tenants um a lot of the time they don't end up being particularly sympathetic towards them
3: and it's and it becomes a negotiation basically to determine yeah. when to act and when not to act
1: right and
3: uh yeah and what correct. has the
1: most sort of immediate impact for versus long-term impact and um yeah and there's not necessarily an easy answer
3: and I, I think there was something in lines of frequent flyers if a person continues to be uh re uh referred multiple times then the uh, likelihood of being cited may, may increase uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So this is all very fascinating to me and and particularly it's fascinating to me because you selected Chicago. Chicago Mm -hmm. has a long history of being an urban center. I think of the Chicago fires and maybe being a consequence of how uh, housing and how buildings were, uh, were built uh, initially in the city being so close uh, to one another. And then Chicago having a history of a project housing and tenement housing. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I, I guess what, other than being at Northwestern, what <laughs> what sort of uh, swayed you to selecting Chicago for your uh, place of investigation?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the pragmatic reason obviously cannot be ignored. I was living in Chicago at the time when I was a graduate student doing my research, so this was uh, this made a lot of sense for for pragmatic reasons. But I also think, I mean, Chicago is far too often held up as a sort of exemplar of American cities, which I think we have a whole host of evidence that shows us that is not true. Chicago is not generalizable uh, to all cities or all American cities or even all the Midwestern cities, you know, far from it. But what I do think is, um, is generalizable is the fact that is a system of sort of building code enforcement and the the punitive way that we have organized um, the regulation of building housing conditions in in the US and in, in US cities. I also think that the way frontline workers like building inspectors in this cake in this case make stabs at justice amid sort of markets and particular contexts that impact the implementation is something that exists widely, not just within Chicago and and, and the environs in and the, and the environs. And I also think that one thing um, that we can sort of extrapolate from this case is that. While there are, is a good reason to to continue to study the way that things like racism and financialization produce housing inequality, reproduce disparity and precarity, I think we also have to pay attention to how attempts to do the opposite can also reproduce inequality and disparity.
3: Yes, uh, one of the things that I that I that I find intriguing. Um, even in you know Marxist theory, is that uh, even the bourgeoisie are bound by an economic condition uh, that they're carrying out. So I, that's one of the things that I enjoyed most about reading your book is that you didn't demonize the inspectors, you didn't demonize the the homeowners necessarily either, nor the nor the tenants who are in there. You the goal was not to figure out the bad guy, but instead to figure out what is the the system of reproduction that is resulting in inequality. So thank you for that.
1: That. Sure. Yeah. I mean that was something that um yeah, that didn't that didn't wasn't an automatic choice, but it kind of came through in my uh figuring out how to discuss this situation that inspections are in. Yes, and, and, and you
3: know being honest to your findings, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And my, surpri- my my findings surprised me, and then I had to figure out a way to explain them. Um, so I think that that's hopefully what has made the book. Um, I, I would like to think accurate and also ideally useful. Excellent.
3: Well, thank you for for uh, taking the time with me today to discuss this. We do have time for uh, one more yearning question that everybody wants to know is what is it that you're working on now? What's your next project?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, my project now um, very much takes off where this book ended up, which is that, um, what's the point of building code enforcement if people cannot afford to comply with building uh, the building code or fix up their homes? So the next project um, is a study of home repairs. Um, I've been talking to both homeowners who can and cannot afford repairs and asking them questions about how they prioritize and fund and address issues um as they come up and also issues in the future as well as talking to um property managers landlords and city officials about um other ideas about how to prepare for what i think is a very inevitable future which is the aging of our housing stock
3: yes and the the changing style in which young people want to live and how people are migrating i think of that too as like Mm -hmm. um people returning back to, to downtown areas and mm. and living uh, you know living and working in, in similar and similar settings mm-hmm. uh, but yeah so it'll be interesting to see where housing goes and I'm interested in in having you back on the show and reading your next mm-hmm. uh, your next book on on what the tenants and what the um ho- homeowners have to say about uh deteriorating housing in the United States of America
1: yeah I look forward to that too
3: Excellent. Thank you again Robin for joining me today. This has been Thank another ep- This me. has been another episode of New Books in Sociology, again a channel on New Books Network. Have a great day.